Let's go ahead and read from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 27. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Joseph and, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, God, for this opportunity to dive into your word. Father, I pray against distractions. Father, I pray for my own heart and mind, Lord, that I will be sharp, Father, and that my words will be precise and accurate, Father. God, I pray that you will bring the word to those that are here hearing it, Father, that you will uh, apply it in the way you seem best, Father. God, we love you, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. I've seen a lot of hard images this week, a lot of uh, tragedies and sufferings and difficulties from the people of God, and um, I've also seen a lot of beautiful things. I've seen uh, pastors and, and pastors like Brandon, I've seen friends like uh, Lauren and Jeanette Crabb standing around hospital bed of loved ones. I've seen family members hugging and kissing and praying. I've seen um, people calling to check in on Nick and Brittany and wanting to know what they could do to help. I've seen a lot of good things that have come in spite of a lot of tough things. I've had a, a lot of time to think about this text um, this week and, and a lot of time to think about what is this text, Matthew 2, how does it apply to what we have seen this week, to the things that have happened this week. And this is really the challenge of a preacher is to make the, to show how the text that we are at, studying at hand applies to what has been going on this week and what is going on in your lives. Because the scriptures are not just some theological treatise that we can open up and it has some kind of relevance to your spiritual life. Now we believe that the scriptures apply in, in, in every way possible and that they speak words of healing and words of grace and words of peace and words of love from God himself to you in your situation that you're currently in. Here's some of the thoughts I had. It's easy to talk about God's promises when all is right and well in life. But it is much more difficult to talk about God's good and faithful promises when life 
shows us all the hindrances and obstacles that seem to be standing in the way to keep them from happening. How can we be sure that God's promises are true when things seem to be the exact opposite of what God intends for them to be? Surely God doesn't intend for little babies to be hurt. Surely God doesn't intend to have such horrible losses and pain. How can we be confident in a complete return to the full presence of God while our bodies suffer from things like cancers and sicknesses and pain? How can we hold on to promises of resurrection, real resurrection, not just some metaphorical resurrection, but a real physical resurrection where dead bodies come out of the grave on the last day? How can we hold on to promises of the resurrection as we watch our loved ones be buried, as we momentarily separate from them? How do we know that we will indeed live in the kingdom of a good and eternal king when it seems like the whole world is doing everything it can to make that not happen? In answering these questions, Matthew 2 serves us well because it shows both by illustration and by subtle promise that nothing, no maniac king, no bad circumstance, not even a massive onslaught of death itself can hinder God from accomplishing his good redemptive work. As we will see in the story of Herod's attempt to murder Jesus, God's promises march over anything that stand in their way. One by one, God stacks up and lays out his opponents that try to thwart his redemptive plans. And in this, we're going to see this. That the sorrows that might initially look like setbacks to God's plan are in reality fitting perfectly and propelling forward his promise and purpose. God doesn't have setbacks. Everything works together to push his promise, to push his words forward to their final fulfillment. Now, as mentioned in the last sermon, Herod stands in the place of the Psalm 2 kings who set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, against the Messiah. In Herod's mind, if he exterminates the Christ, the promised king of Psalm 2, then perhaps he may keep his throne and go on in his self-indulgent, pleasure-seeking, vain life. Maybe he can hold on to some semblance of his own kingdom, and he doesn't have to submit to another king. He can be the top dog in Israel. If the Messiah is no more, then there's no need to fear the reign of a son of David who will experience worldwide dominion and to whom all the nations will bow the knee and all the nations will confess his lordship. As will be seen in the passage at hand, Herod is willing to sink to any depth, even unleashing an army against Bethlehem's babies to thwart the promises that had been given concerning the Messiah. And yet, as Matthew masterfully shows, Herod was completely unsuccessful to restrain God's promises. He mentions the fulfillment of three Old Testament prophecies that show that though on the surface this looks like a Messiah's retreat, this looks like a temporary setback, though it looks like a defeat of God's plan, in reality, even Herod's actions fit perfectly to push what God has said would happen forward. That which looks like horrific and horrible and a tragedy is actually the progression, the advancement of God's 
good promises. And not one word of his good promises will fail. Despite all the opposition they face. Matthew two thirteen through 15 begins by saying this. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So Joseph's probably getting the picture at this point that since his marriage to Mary, he's not going to have a full night's sleep. Angels are going to keep coming in dreams, warning him. Okay, So an angel comes again, warns him that Herod's about to unleash this massive onslaught and kill thousands of Bethlehem babies, trying to seek out the Messiah and kill the Messiah. So he's told to flee to Egypt. Egypt was a safe place for the Messiah to grow up. There were people there that Herod was afraid of. There were people there that Herod wouldn't dare to cross the borderland. And so he's actually asking Joseph to retreat, to run. Now, in my mind, just, just thinking about this and thinking initially, this, this looks like bad stuff happening. This is the Messiah running, the Messiah fleeing, the promised Savior running and becoming a refugee in another country because another king wants to kill him. And yet, Matthew's quick to tell us that the main point is not the fact that Jesus had to run. The main point is not that Herod opposed the Christ. Taking center stage and taking the limelight is the faithful God making things exactly as he said they would happen. Is God setting up the pieces in the way that he wants them to be? What looks like on the surface to be a retreat is actually redemption being played out in every way that God said it would. Dotting every I, crossing every T, not one promise, not even one semblance of the promise left undone. God working through Herod's opposition. He quotes from Hosea 11.1 saying this, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you like to study your Bible, you would turn to Hosea 11.1 and you'd find that Hosea does not seem to be talking about the Savior at all in that text. It seems like Matthew's kind of using it out of context. It seems like Matthew's just kind of cherry-picking the Old Testament to show messianic significance. But if you go back to Hosea and you actually listen to what Hosea says, it begins to make sense what Matthew's doing. Hosea is speaking of Israel as the corporate son of God. The nation of Israel is God's son. It goes back to Exodus chapter 4 verse 22 when God told Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Of course, Pharaoh refused. God sent the plagues, the last of which forced Pharaoh powerfully to his knees. So Hosea looks back on the first exodus. He looks back on what God did to Pharaoh. He looks back on Israel being called out as God's son from Egypt. And he says, he prophesies that a second captivity is coming. This time Israel's not going back to Egypt though. They're going into Assyria. He says Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. So there's the bad news of Hosea 11. A second captivity is coming. A new exile is beginning. A new bondage to a new country is coming because of Israel's sin and rejection. That'd be bad news in and of itself. 
But then Hosea gives good news that follows in verses 10 through 11. With this new captivity is also coming a new exodus. With this new captivity and this new move to another country, this new exile, there will be a new return. When God calls his son out of Egypt once again, where he calls his people back. Now, whenever a New Testament writer quotes an Old Testament text, he intends for the readers to be thinking of the original passage in it in full. So he doesn't just want you to think of Hosea 11.1. He wants you to think of Hosea 11. And he wants you to think of Hosea. So he's putting it into context. This means that when Matthew quoted Hosea 11, he expects us to see Jesus as the Son, the new Israel, through whom the new exodus has begun. Rather than leading out thousands and thousands of people out of the nation, he leads out one person who represents and, and, and who stands in place of Israel as a whole. He is the new Israel, the Son of God, delivered out of, Exodus, out of Egypt to show that God's new exodus has begun. To show that God is keeping his promises and that he will deliver his people from bondage. What looked on the surface to be just an angry king and a retreating Messiah was actually the outworking of God's redemptive plan. When we think back on the Old Testament Exodus, you can't help but think of Pharaoh and killing thousands of Hebrew babies, right? And yet, did Pharaoh's killing the thousands of Hebrew babies stop the Exodus at all? No. Pharaoh set himself up in opposition to God. He said, come, let us deal shrewdly with the people of God. And he enslaves them and makes life bitter for them and then kills their babies. Surely there's no hope in that. And yet, despite his massacre, he cannot stop the promises that God will bring out his people and bring them back to the promised land. How much more will Herod's massacre fail? That's what Matthew's pointing to. He wants us to understand that the first exodus could not be stopped. God ended his people's captivity to Egypt. In the same way, neither can the second exodus be stopped. God will bring his people back from captivity. God will end their exile. God will bring them back into his presence. And everything that separates the people of God from God will be gone. Everything that keeps God's people out of his presence will be turned back and turned away. So what initially looks like a retreat is actually a redemptive sign that the best days are ahead. That the second exodus has begun. It's moving forward. Nobody can hinder it. God's people will come out of bondage. And nobody will stop God's children from leaving bondage when God delivers them. Matthew quotes Hosea just so that we understand things are not always what they seem to be. A retreating Messiah is not a setback, but an advancement. Jesus going to Egypt just so that he could be called out of Egypt is actually a rehearsal of everything God said would happen already. It's not a chaotic game of chess where Herod makes a move and then God makes a move. No, God has set the chessboard and the pieces move exactly as he wants them to. Herod makes his move according to God's divine sovereign plan. 
pressing the Messiah to go to Egypt so that Hosea 11 would be fulfilled, so that we would see by illustration and by sign that God keeps his promises and that he delivers his people and that a second exodus has come in Jesus. Now that that was extremely enlightening for me when I read it this week, but the next section is the one that I think brings it home even further. Verse 16 picks back up the narrative. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, as already mentioned, Herod's standing in place of Pharaoh here. You should be hearing Exodus 1 when you're reading Matthew 2. He was willing to do anything to protect his throne. I mean, this man is, is, is willing to, to unleash war-trained soldiers against innocent babies. This is why we often call this the massacre of the innocents. It would have been a terrible and traumatic night in Bethlehem. Just go back there. Mothers trying to protect their babies. Fathers trying to fight off soldiers, picking up anything they could. Torches, jars, brooms. Trying to fight off these warriors. Cries being out in the street. Just screams of terror and trauma and pain. Matthew doesn't want to clean clean that up for us. He wants us to feel the weight of how traumatic and how tragic and how painful and how bloody and how horrific this actually was. Surely Herod has won. There are dead babies everywhere in Bethlehem. Surely he's one. How can we say God is sovereign? God is faithful. God is good. God does what he says when we're watching thousands of Bethlehem babies be slaughtered. But in Matthew's eyes, he still sees the fulfillment of God's promises. Things are still marching exactly the way God has said they would. He wants us to know that even this, even the deepest, darkest tragedy that we could ever imagine, still fits together to press God's good promises forward. He is not thwarted by this at all. He is not hindered. He's not even set back. Matthew quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31 when he says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now the Old Testament quotation, as I said, comes from Jeremiah 31, which means that, again, we're to be thinking of the whole context of Jeremiah 31. And in Jeremiah 31, verse 15, which is the verse that Matthew quotes, is the only bad verse in Jeremiah 31. It's the only sad verse in Jeremiah 31. Everything else in Jeremiah 31 is good news. God talks about the end of the exile. God talks about, about his people coming back to him. In, in Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen, Rachel is weeping. About drop my Bible here. Rachel is weeping. She identifies with the people of Bethlehem because she was buried in Ramah. So she stands weeping, signifying the sorrow of watching thousands and thousands of her children die because of the exile, because of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Her children are lost. Surely the promises are no more. Her children are either dead on the ground or they are off in some kind of deportation in Babylon. 
Surely God's promises have been broken. And it's at that moment that God steps in and speaks to Rachel, to Bethlehem. And he says this, Keep your voice from weeping and your, ears, your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. Not coincidentally, it's in the same chapter that God also declares a new covenant will be made with his people. That he will replace their hearts of stone with a heart of flesh. And that never again will people be separated from God. That sin will be no more. They will obey him. They will love him. And God and humanity will live in harmony together. And so even in Jeremiah 31, when this depressing, despairing onslaught happens, not even the onslaught of death itself can keep God from working out his good promises. Death is not a strong enough opponent to keep God from doing what he says he'll do. Let's just imagine, let's suppose we were to walk into a valley full of dry bones, and these are the people of God. Surely now there's no hope. Surely now God's been defeated. Surely now this has been a setback beyond all setbacks. There's nothing but bones, dry bones in the valley. They're dead. It's at that moment that God's spirit whispers. The bones begin to rattle. Muscles begin to grow. Ligaments begin to attach to joints. Skin begins to grow. Lungs and organs are remade. And there you see where there was once bones bodies. And then you suddenly hear this. And the intaking gasp of air. And the people come back to life. That's Ezekiel 37. Over and over and over again, God wants us to understand that even the massive onslaught of death even if all of God's people died at a single moment, even if there was nothing left but bones and graves, God is the God of life who can call the dead to life. God is the God of life. Herod, representing death, massacring babies, does not hinder what God said would happen. Herod's massive onslaught with these thousands of weeping Rachels and mothers and and, and these fathers who have been broken and maimed because of the soldiers, that doesn't stop God from doing what he said he would do. When death stands up to God's promises, it's leveled. Nobody else can do that to death but God himself. Death does not just meet his match in God. Death meets his death in God. Because the onslaught of death cannot keep God from doing what he said. It's extremely important to remember this in our day and age. Matthew 2, looking at this Bethlehem massacre, looking at it and interpreting it and understanding it to actually be a progression of good news, a progression of God's promises, a sign even. This massive, horrific, horrible tragedy being a sign that God's Savior has come and that the end of the exile is on the way. To see death in that light is massively important for us. We may weep now and wonder how in the world God will keep his promises despite such pain and death. 
And yet it's at that moment that the Bible tells us that because Jesus is who he says he is, death itself will be turned back and everything that keeps us out of the promise of God will be absolutely obliterated. If something as terrible as Bethlehem and dead babies and a wicked king cannot restrain, alter, stop, modify in any sort of way God's redemptive plan, then there is nothing in our life that can either. You may bury loved ones. You may hurt. You may have all kinds of pain. You may struggle with cancers. You may struggle with sicknesses. You may struggle with lost loved ones and funerals and brokenheartedness and a fallen world. God doesn't bat an eye. Because death doesn't stop God. When death tries to over- overcome God, when death tries to oppose God, it loses. Now, a third surprising thing I think we learned from this story is found in verses 19 through 23. It points out God's faithfulness to accomplish his promises. Here's what Matthew writes. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Egypt. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he, Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. So here's the picture. Herod's dead. It's a subtle detail. It's something that we kind of just pass over. Herod's dead. And yet there's massive implications in that. Herod did everything he could to keep his kingdom Herod did everything he could to sit on his throne. Herod did everything he could to protect his self-importance and his name. And Herod is dead. He thought he could oppose the king of the universe. And this is an illustration of what happens to those who oppose the king. It cannot Happen. Herod is dead. His kingdom is in ruins. The buildings he, bet, he built are rubble, dust. People have to use a paintbrush to keep them from breaking. To wipe the dust away and see what they were. Herod was dead. He's like glass thrown against a rock, shattered into pieces. Now, Joseph does find out that in his place reigns his son, who's not much better, Archelaus. The world doesn't seem to have any shortage of tyrannical megalomaniacs. Just replaces one after another, just keeps putting them in place. And yet, one by one, they keep falling. And one by one, they die. And one by one, their kingdoms are ruined and shattered and broken. And he reigns on his father's throne. So Joseph, being warned in a dream, decides to not go back to Bethlehem, not to go back into Judea, and lives instead in Galilee. And he lives in a city called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was not the ideal home for an Israelite. 
It was filled with all kinds of Gentile people. It had a shameful reputation. Back during the first deportation, the Assyrians took the Jews away out of the land and then they replaced them with a motley crew of Babylonians and Egyptians and different people they had captured so that there was no true Israelite in in Galilee anymore. It was it was they were kind of seen as half breeds. The Samaritan woman is an example of that. People hated the people of Nazareth. They were they were seen as the 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 people on the outskirts, the marginal folk. And so to live there was kind of to take on this shameful uh, uh, name and reputation. Um, Isaiah 9 describes those who lived there as those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. And so living in Nazareth for Jesus, for a Jew, would have been living in a very gloomy existence. They're living away from the temple, they're living a stone's throw away from synchronistic people who are worshiping idols and calling themselves Jews, who are not really Jews at that time. It would have been a life lived in obscurity, a life lived in poverty. And yet this is where God chooses to raise his messianic child. It's less than ideal circumstances. The worst job you've had can't compare. The worst house you've lived in can't compare. Jesus living in Nazareth was a bad circumstance. And yet even in this, God's promises were accomplished. He says, Matthew says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be a Nazarene. If you try to look for the quotation that he's actually quoting from, you won't find it. Because he's not quoting any specific prophet. In fact, he says this was to fulfill what the prophet said. So he's looking at all of the prophetic literature. And he's saying the whole prophetic books, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, they all speak of him being a Nazarene. And at that moment, I kind of scratched my hand. I'm like, I have no idea where you're going with this, Matthew. I, I don't know anywhere. In fact, the word Nazarene doesn't show up anywhere in the Old Testament. So there's there's... Absolutely no indication what Matthew had in mind until you began to listen to the prophets. The prophets say two things about the Messiah. The first one is, there's, there's a play on words here. The word Nazareth sounds like the word Netzer, which means branch. Okay, it's this little flimsy twig. Okay, Netzer, that's a Netzer. And it's in Isaiah 11.1 1, that after the exile, after the destruction of God's people, that God says he's going to take a twig, a netzer, and plant it on the mountain and rebuild Israel and restore God's people back to himself. And it turns out that that branch is the son of David himself. It's the Messiah. Now we look at the twig and we wouldn't be too impressed. It's just a twig. It's a branch. Israel used to be a tree. The tree's cut down. It's dead. It's broken. God's promises are surely over. And yet God says, no, no, no. I can bring back my promise even with a twig of that tree. And I will bring a twig from that tree, a branch, the son of David, and he will come and you will not think he's worth anything. And yet from him, the kingdom of God will grow. So he could be thinking about that. I like that explanation anyway. The second idea could be that he would be called a Nazarene because it would be an insult. If you uh, have read John chapter 14, then you know that when uh, Philip goes to Nathaniel and he, uh, he, tells, he tells Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. 
Nathaniel hears this and said, Jesus of Nazareth. And then what does he say? Great, let's worship him. No. He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? It, it, it just was this idea that if you lived in Nazareth, they're just, you're just ragamuffin. You're nothing. What did the prophets say about Jesus? That he would come from nothing, live as nothing, and that we would what? Look down on him. He would have no former majesty. Isn't that what Isaiah 53, 2 through 3 says? For he grew up before him like a young plant, a little sapling, like a root out of dry ground. That's not where you'd expect the kingdom of God to grow. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. This isn't a guy that walks down the street and you're like, there's our king. He's not a guy that's got his chest out. He's not a guy making t-shirts for himself or flags or campaigning that you accept him as king. This isn't that kind of guy. He's just walking down the street, looks like a normal guy, has no former majesty, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. And rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. That sounds exactly like what a Nazarene would have been like. To this day, when we take trips to Israel, we get to go to Nazareth, and I get to stand and teach in the synagogue where um, Jesus revealed himself as the Son, as the Christ. And we have our Jewish interpreter, uh, Adam and Shannon, remember him, our Jewish uh, tour guide that uh, uh, is there. And Nazareth is not the place that you would expect the Messiah to come from. Not from there. The Davidic king, the one who would enjoy eternal dominion and reign over all things, the one who would turn back death and end war itself and bring God's people back to the bread. Not from Nazareth. No. No. You'd sooner elect a president from Ennis, Texas or Ferris or wherever else, you guys, some, some little place. Just unexpected. And yet, God shows that even in this unlikely circumstance, in this sad, perhaps bad living situation, God does bring his branch, his twig. God does bring the one upon whom men rejected and looked down upon. And we know how the rest of Isaiah 53 goes, that this one who had no majesty or kingly form that we should admire him, the one that we didn't esteem, but the one that we looked down upon, what he ended up doing. But he was pierced for our transgressions, Right? He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Have you ever thought to think of how amazingly miraculous it is? How amazingly majestic our God is. That he would move his messianic child to live in Nazareth. All for the day that Herod would mock him by nailing Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, over his cross. Despised and rejected because he lived in Nazareth. My friends, even in rejection, God presses forward his promises. Even in bad circumstances, God presses forward his purposes. Jesus being from Nazareth is not a setback. It's according to God's plan. 
God's hidden hand is working here. Moving the pieces exactly as he wants them to be. Leading up to the cross. The truth is is that everything, as chaotic and messy as it might have seemed in those days, was falling perfectly into place. God had sent his son to die and thereby save the world. He would not be killed by Herod. He would not be killed by Archelaus. He would not be a royal, uh, a guy who wears royal robes or becomes rich and lives in the palaces of Jerusalem. He wouldn't be any of that. He would be exactly what Isaiah 53 says he would be. The suffering servant, the Lamb of God. He was sent to die. He was sent to become a curse for us, taking on all the consequences of our sin. The Lamb of God would not die on the way to the altar. The Lamb of God would make it to the altar. And when he arrived at the altar, he would keep his mouth silent and die silently as a lamb so that we may live. The king of all creation, the king who the prophets say that he holds the oceans in his hands, the king who spoke light into existence, the king who knew you by name before your your great, 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 great granddaddy ever thought about their children, that king knew you by name, and yet he took on flesh, carried his cross, was willingly rejected by men, so that in this whole chaotic, messy scheme, he could die on the cross, save you, resurrect from the tomb, and give you a place in the presence of God. Man, Paul is right when he says, all this is done so that the church will stand at the end of time and say, look at the manifold wisdom of God. It may look like a ball of spaghetti noodles to you, but it is a sovereign God working out his plan to the T. God will not be hindered. That the world would oppose the coming kingdom of Christ is not new news. It's been true since Genesis 3.15 when God foretold that there would be enmity between the serpent of the woman and the serpent of the, uh, the, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. It was foretold in Psalm 2 when some kings set themselves against the Lord and his anointed one. In our day, we face our own countless opposition and problems uh, that stand between us and the sight of God's promised land, right? We have pain, we have grief and mourning almost every day and everywhere. Depression runs rampant among us as people of God. Death doesn't sleep. He comes at 2 a.m., he comes at 4 a.m., he comes at 8 a.m., 8 p.m., midnight, whenever. Satan's always prowling around, isn't he? Taking off people one by one, capturing them, devouring them, keeping them in his grasp, blinding them from the truth, causing them to do horrific things, unthinkable things. It seems like we can't go a day without reading in the headlines about racism, violence, corruption, political corruption, and how hopeless it is in our country. With so many overwhelming obstacles, Herod-like enemies who want to destroy your hope, with horrific circumstances that you have to face day by day that sometimes call you to question Will God actually be able to do what he has said he would do? How can we be confident that not one word of God's good promises will fail? I mean, seriously, look at what we're up against. Matthew points us to Jesus. 
Herod tried. He failed. Herod killed thousands and still failed. Jesus was, grown, was raised in Nazareth, surely wiping out any chance of him becoming king of the whole world. And yet, he shows that even in that, things are progressing the way he wants them to do. God simply will not be stopped. Even if he allows us to suffer right now, he promises that there will be a day that suffering will end. My friends, have you ever thought about the fact that right now we must weep? We must cry. Why? So that Revelation 21 will be proven true when God's own hand wipes the tears from our eyes. If there are no tears, there are no hands wiping away the tears. Even funerals, even bad news, even bad circumstances, even heartbreaks propel us to that day when we feel God's warm hand against the side of our cheek. No more tears, no more pain, and guess what? No more death. And those that we thought were lost forever because they died, (laughs) he opens their graves and they come walking out. God's promises are unhindered. They march on until their final and full conclusion in Jesus' return. God preserved his son all the way to the cross. His son died and was buried and then God raised him from the dead. If God did it for Jesus, he promises to do it for you. Not one of his sheep will be lost. Not one of his sheep will be forgotten and left behind. Not one of his sheep will be drifted away and devoured by wolves. God rescues all who are his. God saves all who are his Pharaoh, Herod, Satan himself, death itself cannot pluck one person from God's hand. And one day we will stand on the side of the sea, just as the Egyptians did moments after the Red Sea, and we will sing the song of the Lamb because he has brought a new and better exodus and saved us from a new from a new bondage. He has saved us from bondage to sin itself. We will sing though we've buried loved ones. We will sing though we've had heartaches. Can you imagine this? No matter what you've been through, no matter how deep, dark your pain is, if you are at the sea at that moment, you will sing. No matter how much you don't feel like singing now, at that moment, after having seen everything God does and the way that he destroys his enemies at the Red Sea of of his redemptive work, not one of us will be able to keep ourselves from singing. The memory of a dead brother, the memory of a broken family, the memory of a hurt child, the memory of a lost loved one. It will not be able to hinder your song because God will be victorious. Well, what will we sing? Oh, you know, the same thing that people have sung throughout all creation. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Keep in mind we're singing this to Jesus. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. And then come the nations, and all nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. 
on the side of the sea, God's hidden hand will be unveiled fully. Righteous acts revealed. God's perfect plan made known. So as Matthew so powerfully reminds us, our exodus will be accomplished. The exile will be put to an end and Jesus will reign as the crucified and risen king. Why? Because Jesus is the yes and amen to every one of God's promises. Whatever you have been through this week, it doesn't stop what God has said would happen. You will make it home because of faith in Jesus and trust in him alone. If you'd like to pray with the elders, um, I'd ask elders uh, to go to the back and wait. Um, If you'd like to pray and just be reminded of the good news of the gospel. This is the moment. The gospel is not just good to get you out of hell. Uh, It's not a get out of hell free card or anything like that. It is a gospel that we live by. A gospel that comes even in the hospital room. A gospel that comes even in in the funeral home. A gospel that comes even now whatever suffering you may be going through, whatever fear you might have. So we want to remind you of the gospel and want to continue to press your faith to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are. God, every word of your good promises will come true because Jesus is the yes and amen of them all. And so, Father, now we wait. Still in the pain and in the morning, Father, which I do believe is from you. You allow us to weep at this moment. You think it good for us to weep at this moment. Because, Father, you want us to experience the goodness of your hand as you wipe away the tears from our eyes. God, we feel the breath of death, but one day that cold breath will be gone because death will be dead. God, give us hope. Give us faith. God, help us to believe in Jesus who does and fulfills and accomplishes all that you say. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.